have your Bibles this morning, please join me in the book of 1 John. We'll be taking a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. A honeybee takes a small amount of pollen. We would probably call it a grain. Flower power. Actual flower power. And they eat it. They put it into their stomach where it mixes with their gastric juices. And then, at a time known best to the honeybee, that little grain of flower power, that little grain of pollen, is then puked into a cell in the hive and capped with wax. It is spit into the cell from the bee's stomach. Over the course of the honeybee's lifetime, it will eat a number of grains of pollen and puke a number of times into a cell in the hive, and it will produce, in its lifetime, approximately one-eighth of a teaspoon of honey. Honey is literally bee puke or bee spit. When I was actively keeping bees when my boys were younger, we sold the honey and we called it Bees Boys Bee Spit, B-E-E-Z, for Benaiah and Ezra, and it was $5 a pound for high-quality Putnam Bee Spit. We thought that was better than bee puke. You can be the judge. But honey, while we do not like the process, we don't like hearing about that process, we cannot deny its power and its efficacy. It is one of the most powerful sweeteners that we know. It can be added to almost anything that we consume and ingest, and it will make it sweeter. And you may be aware, but just not entirely aware, I know that I learned a few things about honey, that it's also good for us on the outside as well. Bee honey is not only good for you, sweetens things on the inside when we eat it, it is also powerful on the outside when we apply it to our skin. Honey is naturally an antioxidant, an antibacterial agent, and an anti-inflammatory agent. Studies have been done. Of course, we know that honey has been used as a poultice or a salve for thousands of years. Studies have been done proving that it actually helps with scrapes and, and burns and abrasions because of the three qualities that it has when it is applied topically. We don't like the process. We can't deny the power. Honey is good for us inside and out. Join me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 of 1 John, and let me close the loop on this opening illustration. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He himself is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. When the gospel is applied to those of us inside the church or outside the church, it is effective 100% of the time. The power of the gospel is capable of not only saving those of us who have embraced the message to the uttermost, but when the power of the gospel is applied to those who are on the outside of the gospel, still living in sin, it has the power to save them as well. And so we can say truthfully that while we may not like the process of the gospel, that it cost Jesus his life, which makes us a congregation that is constantly reminding ourselves of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his experience. 
on earth, which was not a pleasant one, we cannot deny the power. Inside and outside of the church, when the gospel is applied internally, it brings salvation, and the power of the gospel is such that when it is applied to those in the world who are deep in sin, it can radically save them as well. And this is what John writes to us. He himself is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Am I saying that everybody is saved just because they were born? No, that is not what the text is saying. It's saying that the power of the gospel, when you, if you don't apply honey to the burn, it's not going to heal the same way. It has to be applied for it to be effective. It has to be consumed for it to be tasted. The gospel is the same way. When it is applied, it is perfect in what it is designed to do. And the power of Jesus, the propitiation of Jesus, is designed to translate us from temporal to the eternal. Those of us who have embraced or consumed the honey of the gospel know it powerfully on the inside. And also for those of us who are outside, experience some of the benefits of the gospel. But the call is to receive it. Because when it is applied, when it is consumed, it is 100% efficacious and powerful. This is how John kind of wraps up the thought bubble of chapter 1 and introduces the idea of chapter 2. If you are a note taker, I would encourage you to write down these four words with little arrows going from one to the next. Because this is the thought of the next few verses where we're going to spend our time together this morning. The whole main idea of the sermon now that has been introduced with the greater overarching idea of the efficacy of the gospel, the power of the gospel, is going to move into a conversation of assurance. And this is the logical link of the next few verses. And, and it'll become clear, hopefully, through the preaching of God's word and my illustrations. But if you're a note taker, write these four words down. Obedience little arrow to the right, understanding, little arrow to the right, assurance, little arrow to the right, authority. I want to show you this chain of logic in the next few verses that are found in John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So again, continuing, keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between some big ideas on the screen and the biblical text. But stay with me because I'm hoping to make this really, really powerful and clear to you, understanding that uh, there's some amazing truth here in this text. Picking up the text in verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The overarching theme, of course, is the power of Jesus to save. When it is applied, it is powerful inside and out. We may not care for the process, but we cannot deny the power. So the question is, how do I know that that power has been applied effectively to my life? How do I know I'm eating honey? How do I know I'm applying honey to the place where it hurts? John says that we can know and have assurance that we have come to know him when we keep his commands. And uh, verses 3 through 4, I just kind of, in my own study and in my own brain, I think of it like this. This is the great obey. This is the great command to obey. This is the great impetus from John to say, follow me as 
to take you on a journey of assurance, the first step is obedience. And here's what we have to understand about obedience. When we are obedient, when we do what this text says, keep his commands, when we are obedient, what we are actually doing is we are placing ourselves under the authority of God. And so that's why I kind of refer to it as the great obey. Because there are times in our lives where we place ourselves under the authority of any number of different people or organizations, and we are obedient to them. We are following their commands. In the life of our sons now, who are college students, the great obey for them is the teacher hands out a magical document at the beginning of the semester called a syllabus. You live or die in the world of GPA and class completion by the syllabus. It doesn't really even matter what you think or feel about the instructor. Do what the syllabus says. Or don't. You will be found obedient or disobedient. And as you are obedient to the contents of the syllabus, your GPA goes up. You have confidence that you know the material if you have mastered or been obedient to the syllabus. We know that, that we have mastered the content of our salvation, that we are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as we are obedient to his commands. You're a first grader. You probably don't hand out a syllabus in first grade. That, that would be a little bit silly because the child can't read. It's actually the teacher's job to teach them how to read so that when they're college students, they can read the syllabus. So there's no syllabus in first grade, but there are expectations of your child's behavior that are conducive to a classroom environment, and they are communicated by that teacher. And as your child obeys, they are going to thrive in that educational environment. If they are disobedient, they are not going to thrive in that educational environment. Recently, I picked up a side hustle, and I've begun uh, substitute teaching in technical high school. I have a very technical background, a very technical training, and I'm leveraging so that we can help pay for college for the boys. So I walked into an uh, auto shop, no, a uh, plumbing shop recently, and uh, down at uh, El Grasso High School in Groton. The first thing that happened at 7.15 in the morning one young man walked into the classroom. All the chairs are up on tables, which are set up like a big U, so that you could walk through the middle of the U. 7.15 in the morning, this is how my day started, he took his left arm, walked around inside of the U, and knocked every single chair right into the middle of the floor, and then turned around and looked at me. What's up? Mr. Substitute Teacher? He was challenging my authority. To his credit... The other teacher in the shop, the guy that's actually a plumber, started heading into the classroom. I said, oh, no, 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 I got this. Won his respect immediately, which was my first objective for the day. Walked into the classroom and said, gentlemen, this is not how our day is going to begin. When the chairs are stated, seated, when the chairs are placed behind the table and your rear end are in those seats, we will begin the day the way we need to. And then I stopped talking and just stared at him. 30 seconds later, six high school students were seated in chairs behind their desks, quiet, ready to go. We got along fine for the rest of the day. Why? 
exercise, but they were going to be obedient. And I had an obedient expectation of them, that the day was not going to move forward until we got first things first. And so it is with a, with a life of faith. We know that we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father when we obey His commandments. It gives us great assurance. There is a difference, and, and, and here's the tension, because there's a difference between trained and self-taught, and especially in, in North America, and especially in a uh, puritanical culture, which is still the remnants of the culture that we live in, we value pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, or if you're British and you watch the great British baking show, if you pull up your own socks, it's a way of saying that uh, we like it when we are self-taught, when we are when we make our own way and we value this. The, the problem is that there are times that we can, through our own effort and self-heartedness and hard work, accomplish the objective. But we never ever look for that in our doctors. We never look for that in our professional educators. We never look for that in our pilots. The more challenging the life scenario, the more training we want of those that we're going to lean on. You don't want to go to the doctor and, and look for the degrees on his wall and he says, I'm self-taught. Perfect. You never want to walk into a classroom in a college environment or even an elementary environment and say, oh, oh I'm self-taught. You never want to walk into an airplane and fasten the seatbelt and the pilot come over the intercom and say, hey, I'm self-taught. You win some, you lose some. You, the, the more challenging the dynamic of our life, the more we want someone to be trained. We want to know that they have been obedient to the commands of their profession. We know that if a doctor has been obedient to the expectations and the training, that there's a good chance he's going to know things that we don't know, and we will find a degree of healing. There is a metaphor throughout the book of 1 John and in the Gospel of John that we will never understand if we do not understand what happens to us when we obey. When we obey, we receive understanding. And the metaphor that is used powerfully that illustrates this concept in all of John's writing is light. We will never understand what John means by light until we understand that when we obey, now we begin to understand. There is value to hard work, there is value to trying hard, but nothing replaces obedience to a command. And we know it when we look at the technical professions that we lean on. I'm your plumber today, and I am self-taught. Well, you might get the job done, or you might flood my bathroom. I'm your electrician today. Perfect. Yeah, I, I live and die by the spark test. When I throw power on, either sparks or it doesn't. Well, maybe it's not sparking, but maybe it's smoldering. How about I find someone that's actually a licensed electrician, right? We get this, because with obedience to the principles of plumbing, to the principles of electricity, to the principles of science, to the principles of flight dynamics, to the principles of personal accounting during tax time, we receive understanding. With obedience comes understanding. John refers to this as light. Walking in the light, living in the light, being in the light, or the opposite, ignorance, disobedience, darkness. So this is the first uh, line of reasoning that John is laying out in the text, that with obedience comes understanding. With obedience comes visceral knowledge of 
couldn't have understood until we obeyed. When the child learns how to carry the wood into the wood box, there is a day coming when that child will understand how to start a chainsaw. Something that the child could have never even conceived of by carrying wood into the house. Because of their obedience, they are going to be exposed to principles and understandings of things that they can't even imagine. You don't entrust chainsaws to children who can't be entrusted to carry the wood into the wood box. The child that doesn't sweep the area around the wood box after filling the wood box never fills the gas tank on the chainsaw. It's just that simple. When we obey, we begin to understand and have opportunities to understand things that would have never been possible without the simple obedience. And the power of obedience is that it can start immediately, even sometimes without understanding, knowing that with obedience comes understanding. Let's move on from the text. Picking up in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. John refers back to the great mystery of of 1 John, which is how do you complete the fellowship of God? How do you complete the joy of God? How do you complete the joy and the fellowship of the saints? If God is God and is perfectly self-sufficient, which we know he is, or else he's not God, how do you complete or perfect something that God is experiencing? And the answer is to share it, right? We talked about that last week. How do you perfect a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup? You give one away, because now the experience has been shared. And this is what John is making the case for in his book of 1 John, that we actually complete the love or the fellowship of God when it is found to come alive in our lives through obedience. Here's the big idea. Assurance comes when idea meets action. This is what he's saying right here. Whoever keeps his word, truly in him, here's the result, the love of God is perfected. It's not knows his word, it's not understands his word, it's not respects his word, appreciates his word, it keeps his word. The idea is that when the word, when the obedience is complete, not just considered, there's an idea of obedience that leads to understanding. When that happens, the love of God is perfected. And assurance begins to grow in the life of the believer when the word of God is kept. Whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is perfected. How is the love how is it possible to perfect the love of God? John is going to go on in this book and say that God is love. That if you were to summarize him in one word, you would use the word love. How can that be perfected when that love is replicated in the lives of his people when they have been obedient? And the result is assurance. The love of God is perfected. John continues in this verse, This is how we know we are in him. Verse 6. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Who is he referring to? 
go right back to the beginning of this thought bubble, which is the beginning of chapter 2, he's referring to Jesus Christ. So, the one who says he remains in him, in God the Father, should walk just as he, Jesus, walked. And so we see that with obedience, we have an opportunity to gain understanding when we are bound to be obedient to the commands of God. As we walk forward in understanding, our assurance grows. And then the final part of our logic chain here in these verses is that we now should walk just as Jesus walked. The question is, well, how did Jesus walk? And you take a look in the New Testament, and what is the one thing that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day said time and again from the time of his youth as a 12-year-old right up until the time that he went to the cross? Where did he get these things? By whose authority? By what authority do you say these things? Where did he get this understanding and authority? Something that was said about Jesus the entire time he walked the planet. That Jesus walked with authority and taught with authority like nobody else ever did. The source of Jesus' authority was a direct link to his obedience to the Father, right? We know, and this is a mysterious thought, that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He had his will and there was the will of his Father. And he conformed his will to the will of his Father. He was obedient to the commands of his Father that resulted in understanding and wisdom beyond any compare of his contemporaries or ever since, which led to a great level of assurance, which led to him living with the authority of God in his life, such that we have never seen anything like it since. In fact, we consider his word to be holy, to be the same as God. We consider Jesus' authority to be parallel to, to be synonymous with the authority of God, directly linked to his obedience while he was on the planet. The final big idea this morning, which I will illustrate and then wrap up our time together this morning, is this. Assurance releases authority. So we have obedience to the commandments of God, Leading to understanding. This understanding gives us great assurance, and this assurance releases the authority of God. Let me illustrate in a couple of different ways. Years ago, when I was still flying, I went for a run in Massachusetts, where we were living at the time. And I've never been a fast or very good runner at all. I'm a very slow and stodgy runner, so I wasn't doing anything. I'd say I was running but I call it slogging, which is slow jogging. That's the more accurate description of it. I was slogging my way through Attleboro one morning, and I had I was scheduled to fly later that afternoon. I took one step, and I couldn't move my left arm. It, it stopped. It just fell to my side. And every time I tried to raise it, shooting pain, shooting, breath-taking pain in my left arm. I hadn't been mugged. I hadn't been stabbed, I hadn't tripped, I hadn't stumbled, I was just slogging. I took one step, the step before I was fine, that step, now my left arm actually does not move, shooting pain every time I try to lift it above my elbow at all. Problem is, as a first officer, these are thrust lever arms right here. This is my thrust lever arm. 
go slow, go fast. It matters. It's a big deal in an airplane. I couldn't do this motion at all. I was supposed to be flying that afternoon. I knew I didn't need surgery because I just took a step. And I knew that Advil wasn't going to cut the pain because something pinged in my shoulder. First time in my life, I called up a chiropractor. was able to get in that day. I described what happened while I was slogging. He said, come here. I took a step closer. He took two fingers, pushed me right here. Now try it. Not a problem. Completely pain-free. Can move my left arm perfectly. He said, it's very boring. I will have you 50% today, 70% in a week, and 100% in two weeks. You go to work today. He spoke with great assurance. He spoke with great authority. Why? He had been obedient to the study of physiology. When I described what happened, he knew what muscle pinged, and he knew that it just needed to be relaxed and massaged back into the right place, and that he could do it that day. I thought he was a magician. I thought he was absolutely magical. Because I'd never experienced anything like that life. Sudden and complete debilitating pain to 100%. I just needed him to touch me right here all day long. That wasn't going to happen. But he was able to massage the muscle tissue, and it's never happened ever again. And sometimes when my arms get sore, I know where to massage, and I'm up and running. 100 complete percent authority with assurance because he had been perfectly obedient to how the human body works. Another example, a young man came to me many years ago now. This has happened a couple of times. And he said, Josh, I, you know, there's this girl. And I love her. And, but I'm just not sure if I love her enough to marry her. I don't know if I should drop the rock or not. What should I do? In both of these situations, with 100% assurity and confidence, I began to say things like this. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, which are sourced from the authority of the Word of God, and one of two things is going to happen, depending on how you answer. You will be married to her within a year, or you will never ask her to marry you. You ready? I'm ready because I really need to know. I'm, I, I, it's like I can't move forward. I don't know if she's the one or if she's not the one. Here's the questions, and I begin to ask questions like this. In the middle of the night, with your third child, who is a brat, who is crying, is she the one that you get up in the middle of the night without being asked and bring that child to her so that she can nurse it? Is she the one? Is she the one that always drives the new car and you drive the beater? Is she the one? I begin asking questions about lead service provider, which is what the Bible says about what a husband is. That he is the lead servant provider. And I begin to ask question after question after question. Is she the one that you will lead in a servant provider way? And one of two things happens. He goes, no, that's actually crazy. She needs to be bringing me breakfast. You'll never ask her to marry you. Or please don't. Or by the end of the conversation, he's going to buy a ring. How does this happen every single time? Why can I speak with that kind of authority and that kind of assurance? Because I know exactly what the Bible says about being a husband. And when you challenge a young man with this, he either gets fired up or he walks away. There is great clarity because he's either willing to perfectly obey God's word because of his love for this woman, or he realizes his love is not as great as he thought it was, and it's something else. It's time to move on. Final example, and with this I'm wrapping up our time here this morning because we 
have a, a decision to make, all of us do, uh, after being exposed to, to God's Word like this in like John on Friday. Third example, I preached with great clarity and conviction every single Sunday in September that we were going to begin making those decisions of faith about our money and that we were going to see God move powerfully in our finances as we were obedient to Him. We began receiving pledge cards. People were indicating, I am willing to either begin tithing because I haven't been tithing, I'm going to begin giving generously because I have not been giving generously, above and beyond a tithe, or I'm going to begin giving sacrificially, which is beyond generosity, the three levels of biblical giving. Every Sunday I began saying, we're going to see the level of faith in this church grow as we are obedient to what the Bible says about our money. Such cards started coming in. In the three weeks, this is the fourth week, since delivering those messages and asking for pledge cards, every single week, our offering has been up by 30%. Faith is growing in this church. Average week for us in offerings is $3,000 a week for the last three weeks, and I'm cautiously optimistic that today will be the same. We've been receiving in excess of $4,000 a week in our offering. 30% growth. Then the challenge went out. Which, if today's offering is anything like the past two offerings, past three offerings, that means we have realized by faith, four thousand dollars by faith, that this church has actually not pledged but actually delivered, right? And that's what we're excited about. The amount is nice, but what we're excited about is the decision of faith. Since we started receiving the pledge cards, not once but twice, this church has received two checks from an organization that helped us plant whose financial ties with us ended two and a half years ago for money that I never asked for. We received $2,000 in an evangelism grant for the Tough Buddies, never asked for it. On Monday, we received $2,000 for a church planting grant, never asked for it. This church has received $4,000 in unasked for, unlooked for funds since we started making decisions of faith and it perfectly matches what we have been doing by faith. With great authority, I was able to preach in September that we were going to see decisions of faith being made about finances because I know the power of being obedient to God's word. You tell me he's not doing something in this church. You tell me. With obedience comes understanding. With understanding comes great assurance. And with that assurance, authority is released. The child who does their homework is the one who is asked by his classmates how to answer number six. Right? The obedient student is the one that gets known for actually understanding how to do the homework. And folks, what we're seeing here at River Church is that we have been obedient, and with our obedience is going to come increased understanding which is going to lead to increased assurance that we will know that we know that we are in fellowship with the Father, and with that will come great authority to begin speaking about things that we have understood now that we have been obedient. So here's the decision. What is our perspective of the unpleasant process? Feed me the grain. Gastric juices. Bomb. Something with undeniable power. What is our opinion about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because that's where the knob of the salvation is. That's where the 
very thing that God is saying is a part of our journey of faith in the light and understanding. If you do not know Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, would you make the decision to agree that the process may not be one that you understand or appreciate, but you cannot deny the power in response to what you see in God's Word. It feels like the Holy Spirit is talking to you today. Because things have been said, things have been sung, things have been prayed that are resonating in your heart like a bow on a string, an arrow on a string. Maybe quiver out when you touch it. That's the Lord asking you to make a decision of faith. And it sounds something like this. Heavenly Father, I have lived my life according to my own understanding. I have been obedient to my own commands for too long. It becomes apparent to me now that if I want a new understanding, if I want a new assurance, if I want new authority in my life, I need to humble myself to your commandments. And by faith, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Some of us might need to make that decision. Others of us who made that decision 400 years ago, maybe we've been inspired or encouraged or reminded of the importance of the simplicity of being obedient to our Heavenly Father's commands. And there's an area of our lives this morning that we need greater understanding, that we need greater assurance, that we need greater authority, and it comes back to being obedient in a specific area in our lives that is best known may be the case for some of us this morning as well. So let me pray for us this morning by way of conclusion. After we pray, we'll have an opportunity to offer up another song of praise to the Lord. And then we have an opportunity to fellowship and to love and encourage each other before we go. Would you join us in a prayer? Heavenly Father, we love to make things complicated. We love to make things difficult. We love to think obsess and to worry when what we need to do is obey. And so, Father, I pray this morning that your word has been delivered clearly through worship, through prayer, through preaching. Father, I pray that we have been inspired to obey you, whether for salvation or for continued sanctification as we humble ourselves to your teaching. Father, as we are obedient, as we are already seeing would you increase our understanding? Would you grow our assurance? And would we walk in the light with great authority, knowing that it is all sourced from your love for us?